Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. With me as always is my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Monday, August 8th, and today we're going to start by talking about Citigroup dabbling in some financial weapons of mass destruction, and then we'll turn to some issues with the Harvard Endowment. Uh, so, Chris, just a little background. Uh, derivatives have been vilified since the financial crisis. In 2003, Warren Buffett uh, called them financial weapons of mass destruction, and he was very uh, kind of perceptive because at the time, no one was talking about them as issues, and then in 2008... Uh, derivatives and specifically kind of credit default swaps were at the core of the credit crisis. So we can go, why don't I just give a quick example of what a credit default swap is and then we can go into this. So a credit default swap is basically, you can think of it as an option or insurance. If I buy a bond for $1,000, I can buy a credit default swap from you for a dollar or $10 or something. And basically what it says is if this bond goes bankrupt, goes bust, goes broke, you'll make me whole on the bond. So a lot of people call them as FDI, or not FDIC insured, sorry, insured bonds, insured municipal bonds. These are bonds that have had some form of credit default swap or protection uh, put against them. So I'll let you start. Why did banks get in trouble with it? Why is Citigroup turning to it? What's going on here? In theory, securitization is a wonderful thing. It allows people to get the risks that they want. Mm -hmm. Uh, An issue, though, is if you have a highly leveraged financial institution, uh, that itself is leveraged, and then they get these leveraged entities. The individual decision makers have very skewed risk rewards yeah, yeah. that are not well suited for the instruments. And you know, when you listen to Buffett, you know, he's it's an interesting uh, uh, phrase that he used: a weapons of mass destruction. Buffett thinks a lot about weapons, actual weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. both as an insurer and reinsurer. And it's one of his big philanthropies, too. One of the big personal things he supports uh, is nuclear nonproliferation. So mm-hmm. this is not casually chosen and words. If you go back to his views, especially in, I believe, the late 70s, early 80s, you can find a lot of examples of him talking about the dangers and downside risks from nuclear weapons, which fortunately didn't come out to play, but it's clearly something he was terribly frightened of in the 70s and 80s. It's something he's thought a lot about. And uh, when you hear statistics that he uses, um, it is sobering uh, and hard to argue against. But in any event, it's a phrase he used in this case. I think there's a certain amount of justifiable immodesty of things that he does not think is good for other people, but he rather trusts himself to use. Although, you know, he's at the end. He got out of his last... Uh, uh, credit derivatives this past month at uh, the same time that his cash pile was up to $73 million, billion. So let me give some background there. So uh, Buffett, I think in 2007, 2008, he actually wrote a bunch of equity puts on the indexes and he took a lot of credit default swaps yep. on actually. So it was kind of one of those things where he was saying they were financial me- weapons of mass destruction, but he's kind of a pro and he felt that he himself could use them. Though I think the returns on them have actually kind of been pretty sketchy even for him. So let's talk about how banks got in trouble with real quick. Basically what you do is you take in a dollar premium and you're insuring $100 or $1,000 or something or bonds. And you were talking about the, uh, the issues with kind of executives. And what happens is, you know, if you if you write $1,000 worth of premiums and you take in a dollar of premium uh, and nothing bad happens that year, you get a big bonus. 
nothing bad happens next year, you get a big bonus. Well, then 2008 happens and you need to pay $1,000 and your institution was 10, 20 times levered. And a lot of these institutions were really losing money hand over fist. In the 1800s, most financial institutions in the US, I probably have said this a million times already in the podcast, were partnerships. Uh, if you own something that looked like a stock certificate, you had equity, it was not limited liability. And I think that that captured one's imagination and allowed you to have a lot of discretion on what you did, owning symmetrical upside and downside. You know, I, I think the issue with that was in the 1800s, and we're way off topic here, but in the 1800s, you're dealing with generally kind of, the you're dealing with the local bakery or the local mm-hmm. thing. I don't think the partnership structure like that works when you're dealing with huge multi-billion dollar, uh, huge multi-billion dollars multi-corporate companies because th- what, what's it matter if I give a personal guarantee? I, I just wanted to throw out yeah. though that in this corporate structure where you, you have this huge asymmetry as an individual taking a flyer, yeah. especially if you could have what appeared to be the case in 2008 and 2009, uh, capitalist upside and socialized downside. Yep, exactly. And so anyway... Uh, so we've talked about why banks got in trouble with them. You know, it's really what AIG was the biggest case in 2008 yeah. getting in trouble with that. But so what we're talking about here is Citigroup recently has actually been buying a lot of credit default swaps while a lot of banks are selling them to them and exiting the business. Big time. Uh, yeah. So uh, they recently bought a $250 billion portfolio from Deutsche Bank last year. Uh $380 billion additional portfolio from Credit Suisse last week. I mean, these are huge portfolios and Citigroup is out there saying like, we feel like we're specialists in it. We're building out this big practice. We're doing a lot of stuff in it. So, uh, it, you know, at the same time, JP Morgan's reducing exposure. Bank of America's reducing exposure. So what do you make of this strategy, Chris? Do you like that they're zigging where others are zagging? Or do you think they should kind of think, oh, everybody else is zagging. We should be zagging here too. Um, I often do. In this case, you know, we'll see how this all ends up. Uh, and in this case, I think it could end badly. We'll see. I never owned a share of Citigroup. It's something I spent two or three weeks on during the financial crisis. And I vividly remember a friend I had with a much more senior guy having spent a few weeks on it. I said, geez, I just spent a few weeks on it. I don't think I could understand even 1% of what the CEO could understand. It's so complicated. And he said, oh, it's worse than that. You understand anything and everything he could understand. It's unanalyzably complex. Yep, yep. And, and, you know, so I, I'm with you. I normally like the zigging where others are zagging uh, strategy. Usually. But here, Citigroup is the bank that uh, I believe it was Chuck Prince was the CEO at the time. He famously said, as long as the music's playing and everyone else is dancing, we're going to be dancing. Like this One of is, the worst quotes of all time. This is the bank that has been at the forefront of every financial crisis and not in a good way. Like they're literally the bank that is getting bailed out for the foreign currency collapse in the 90s, uh, the, writing the credit default swaps in the financial crisis, moving too quickly into tech at the top of the tech boom. I don't know if that's the bank you want to be zagging. Go when, ahead. When we decide what to not do, I think our first whack would be illegal and our second one would be unanalyzable. And I think you can throw this one out on the second uh, second standard. Yeah, and, and again, here you've got you mentioned it. You've got that moral hazard, right? Like the CEO at Citigroup, he might only have another two or three years if he's increasing his credit default swaps right now. He could be reporting a great return on equity for the next two or three years, and then you know, five years from now, if there's a problem in the book, who cares? It's someone else's problem at that point. So. Yeah. Uh, overall, I really love zigging where zagging. I just don't know. <laughs> Here, it's just, ugh, it's kind of scary. I'll let you have the last thought on it. 
I think if you had serious uh, capital constraints of large financial institutions, you could let them get away with this. But right now we kind of have a very strange regulatory structure uh, and uh, you have participants who are much more sophisticated than the regulators. And uh, so this could end badly. You know, I've got one more thought I'm sure. going to throw in there. If you think of the biggest five banks, you kind of have J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, B of A, Wells Fargo, Citigroup. Warren Buffett, who he's kind of made a lot of his return investing in finance groups. Yep. There, are, He has invested in four of the five banks we know. J.P. Morgan personally, the other three through uh, Berkshire. He's said this pretty publicly. The one that he's not invested in Citigroup. And this might be another reason why he's not invested in them. So makes a lot of sense. I'll take the last word there unless you want anything. No. Okay. So let's turn to Harvard Endowments underperforming. So the CEO of the company that manages Harvard's $38 billion endowment resigned unexpectedly this month. And they will soon be looking for their sixth CEO since 2005. And, uh, you know, Harvard Endowments and Yale's endowment was kind of the flagship leader of this. Mm -hmm. But from 1973 to the mid-2000s, these guys, I mean, everybody looked up to their capital allocation strategy. They were at the forefront of hedge fund investing, private equity investments. They blew out the uh, kind of stock market and bond indices returns. If you had invested $100 into Harvard Endowment at the start of kind of the 19, 1973, it would be worth $40 today versus if you had invested it in the stock and bond index, it'd be worth about $19. So really great returns there. But recent returns have been weak, and that's kind of led to all the CEO turmoil. So I'll let you jump in here. Why have returns been weak? What can they do to change it going forward? What do you think? Weaker. A weaker than a quarter century bonanza of an incredibly strong equity market and even more incredibly strong credit market. A weaker than a quarter century of really the discovery of this great PE model that worked out spectacularly well. Mm -hmm. And weaker than institutions at a scale that couldn't get into some of the mischief of retail investors of high cost, high taxes, high turnover. Over. They were kind of in this basket of low tax, yep. massive, massive impact, a low turnover. By the nature of their mandate and their scale, it forced them to be a little sleepier uh, and a lower cost per, per dollar invested and private equity. And that just ended up being spectacular. The idea that it's less spectacular than that, I'm sort of sympathetic to. I think that long-term uh, asset returns from here are going to be much kind of in the lower single digits for most institutions. And so it's mean reversion from a spectacular peak. But so I, I think you hit on two different points, both of which I agree with. A, their long-term returns have been spectacular, and part of that was driven by the market. And I think, you know, lower interest rates, higher valuations today, you're not going to see the same type of tailwinds from the market. But B, they were beating the pants off the market, right? Yes. For over a period of 30 years, they outperformed the indices by 2 or 3% annually, which doesn't sound like a lot, but we just mentioned the stats. Sure, it results in twice as much money over 30 years. Yeah. Uh, but part of the reason they were is they were very early in private equity investment and hedge fund investing. And they because they were early, they got lower fees and there was less competition. And in my mind, this is just... Uh, economics and competition working, right? They found yeah. something that worked, and now there are hundreds hundreds of private equity firms, thousands of hedge funds, and they've competed away a lot of that excess returns that they got by being early in the 90s. Go ahead. David Swenson, who I quite admire, uh, who was the head of the Yale Endowment, wrote his seminal book, Unconventional Success, in 2005. Right. Uh, Which was pretty much the peak of when they were... The, 
right at the tail end of their best outperformance. Yep. Up, up until that date, I think a lot of the top hedge funds and private equity funds were extremely expectancy focused. That they were working to maximize the value of a dollar. And for somebody who had no liquidity problems like Yale, that was a perfect fit. Uh, and then not that far after the financial crisis, two to three years later, uh, then a lot of the same entities ended up being much more liquidity and volatility focused at a horrendous expense of expectancy. Mm-hmm. And once that happened, it really took apart a huge aspect of the endowment model. Uh, the other thing that's happened is that alumni have been horrifically counterproductive at Harvard. They have actively undermined some of the key components, compensation, transparency, and alignment that led to some just rock stars of the financial world coming to Harvard. Gripes from alumni, effective gripes from alumni, uh, tossed a lot of the best people out of Harvard, why they've had such high turnover. Uh, Market prices are determined by supply and demand. Uh, Comp markets are highly efficient. And some of the best people I know who went to Harvard with great enthusiasm uh, were paid what their skills earn. A lot of people who went to Harvard and you know you got a PhD in French poetry and you think that hierarchy should be academic. And so you're kind of scandalized if somebody... Uh, is making more money than professors that has nothing to do with how markets work. And it's such a great point. I I see a lot of times a lot of people will – this is the other side of the same coin. A lot of people will complain like, oh, these CEOs are getting paid $10 million, $20 million per year. And I don't disagree. There are some CEOs who are paid so much in salary and they're not really getting paid if they're creating value. But look, GE is a $300 billion business, right? Like – yeah, I, I want to pay top dollar because the difference between the absolute best manager in the world running it and the absolute and the second best manager in the world running it is literally billions and billions of dollars of return. So I'm okay giving somebody 50 versus 40 million to lower them in that spot. In Harvard's case, I have a $38 billion endowment. If I pay some guy $20 million and he produces 1% extra return, guess what? That's $380 million of return. Who cares? Go ahead. And when the money was shipped off to a KKR or to a Farallon, Lord knows they were paying their people plenty well. It was simply that it was more visible to the Harvard Mm -hmm. alumni when it was at Harvard. And I I don't think there's any particular reason to name them, but somebody I know who is just a very top flight uh, investing intellect came and then these people were saying, oh, they're making more money than the professors. Well, he wasn't between doing that job and becoming a professor. Paul Tudor Jones said, I'll hire him. And yeah. He's going to run the new event-driven fund there and make more money. And so, you know, the markets work and the people who are griping are going to be punished with actually lower net returns. And it's really only your business what you're getting net. Yeah. And higher expense because then they'll just push the money off to private equity and hedge funds that are highly compensating people that deserve it. So let's talk about... Is there a solution going forward here? And I think the answer is actually no. I think they're at the tail end of the run. Look, at this point, they're $38 billion. So it's not like they can really do anything unique. When you're that big, you kind of have to accept that you are part of the market and you can't really beat the market because size is a limiting, ret- is a limiting factor on returns. Uh, so I think the solutions are what a lot of pension funds have started doing. 
reduce expenses as much as possible. Go index funds, reduce expenses, cut costs, and kind of accept a market-like return. Go ahead. Well, there is certainly a solution for their mandate. Harvard right now today is a hedge fund with an academic subsidiary. And I would simply say if I'm trying to maximize my mandate, what I would do is I would invest in human capital. I would take that $38 billion and I would invest it uh, by a free uh, tuition. Uh, I know that there were some people who were rejected this year for the Board of Oversight with that being a key part of their platform, but hopefully the ideal will survive. Uh, I think it's unconscionable and it's just not that rational to have to try to come up with uh, a outsized performance with an outsized pot of money that's not needed. Uh, and frankly, if the universities don't make that change, as I think they should, then it's probably worth reexamining the huge tax benefit they get for yeah. running a tax-free hedge fund. Yeah, you know, I, I think we're a little outside. A, we're a little outside of our time limit, and B, we're outside of the... No, no, no. And B, we're outside the scope. But I, I think you're absolutely right. Like, these things, they... They've become more asset gatherers than they are actual schools at this point. So I think there is a lot to be said about looking at ways to reduce the asset gathering and return it all to students in some way, shape, or form. But uh, I think that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit uh, before we hit our disclosures, just a quick, uh, quick request. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audioboom. If you have any uh, comments for us, please be sure to email them to us at podcast at rangelycapital.com. Uh, Chris, I don't think we talked about any specific stuff. Oh, we talked about City Berkshire. Group and Berkshire. Oh, you're Long Berkshire. Yeah. You're Long Berkshire. Yeah. I don't have any disclosures. And we will talk to you guys later this week. Where's the stop button? There we go.